We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truth behind it. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully, the justice that was ultimately delivered. Joan Alanto, that is Don still, Palumbo. It's a fire intro that to Midwest Murder. is Midwest Murder. Quick shout out, theme music was written and performed by Eric Michael Anderson with doctors Eric and Diana Anderson, and special thanks to Minot State University Division of Music. So Jonah, what are people saying about Midwest Murder after our first episode? Oh, we seem to be off to a popular start. Um, you can review us on iTunes. One reviewer, Tara Bjornsson, says it's a new true crime favorite. Don and Jonah search the vaults of North Dakota history to remind us that murders really do happen in our sleepy Midwest towns. From the first episode, you realize extensive research of the crime and perpetrator has been done in order to accurately portray the time, setting, and actions surrounding some of the most horrific crimes in North Dakota history. Jonah and Don have great energy and keep the conversation flowing while offering humor and facts during the episode. This is a great true crime podcast, and I look forward to more episodes exploring the darker side of North Dakota. Holy smokes. Yeah. That's so amazing. So if you, if, uh, because we are a newer, newer podcast on iTunes, if you rate us and review us and actually write something, it kind of sends us to the, the top of the list or you know, it kind of fixes that algorithm. So please, please, please rate and review. It's it's huge. It does uh, it does great things for us. Please, yeah. By all means, drop a review, and you just might hear your name in review get read during one of our episodes. Once again, Midwest murder. I'm taking us today to Minokin, North Dakota, 1992. Of course, this is the year Bill Clinton would become president. The L.A. riots occur following the acquittal of the police officers involved in the beating of Rodney King. Of course, that was in 1991. Popular movies in 92. Some of my favorites, uh, Disney's Aladdin. Oh, that's a good one. Sister Act, The Bodyguard, Basic Instinct. Ooh, controversial. Ooh, Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone. And Crossing Her Legs as She Spins Around. Absolutely. That was oh, my gosh. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. And... One of the few decent sequels of the world at that time, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, all released in 92. Uh, MTV premieres The Real World. Which was, where was that episode? Where were they at? I don't, I don't remember. New where, York. Were they? Oh, yeah, it was and, a good one. Yeah, <laughs> I was watching it well before I should have been. Uh, yeah, uh, season 30 of The Real World, of course, just aired earlier this year. So lots of, of course, lots of things happening. Minokin is a small town, lies north and east of Bismarck, North Dakota. And in 1992, it was such a small town, it didn't even register on the 1990 census. 
It's a quiet area, dedicated mostly to ranching and farming, with, of course, some, some area families have, commuting to the nearby state capital of Bismarck for work. Minokin was home to the Nugabauer family, husband and wife Ronald and Maureen. They were 44 and 40, respectively, with their 16-year-old daughter, Michelle, their 15-year-old son, Michael, and 13-year-old son, Ryan. Ronald raised cattle and grain and was president of the elementary school board. Maureen was a secretary at the University of Mary in Bismarck. The Nugabauers were considered good people and good neighbors. As Keith Salter, who owned a farm about a mile down the road, said, they were real nice people. They just kind of kept to themselves. However, there were reports of trouble in the home. There were rumors, as well as some allegations, that Ronald had a temper and that his son Michael was often the target. Ronald and Maureen had briefly separated, and she had moved out of the house and taken an apartment in Bismarck for several months. But after Christmas, the family had gotten back together, and all five of them were living in a mobile home on the farm. In January of of 92, just Right after the family got back together after Christmas, Michael and his 16-year-old girlfriend, Jackie Heeb, had tried to elope. Their parents were alerted, everyone found out, and Michael's sister, Michelle, along with some friends, ultimately stopped the runaway effort. Well, and I mean, besides the law, you know, how are they going to elope? They were 16 or 15. 15 and 14 or 15 and 15. Yeah, Yeah, it's the... Really? Teenagers. I mean, I, I know you barely that... have a license at that point. When you're 15, right. you usually look 15. You do. Even I if mean... you got one of them scraggly beards, you know, them patchy, dirty, like little mustaches. <laughs> like I just started growing this thing yesterday. Yeah. yeah I mean, and I mean, it, you still. It was 91. I know that was, you know, surprisingly 30 years ago. But you guys still have to produce. You're gonna have some, some trouble eloping. Like, yeah, I, I don't get that. I mean, hats off to you, but this isn't 1800. So on the morning of January 27th. Michael showed up at Bismarck Century High School, driving his mother's white 1981 Pontiac Grand Prix and flashing a wad of cash. Jackie and Michael had often talked about running away. For a long time, they'd been writing love letters and fantasizing of escape. At school that morning, Michael walked up to her locker and said, we are running away. Jackie said, okay. I mean, that sounds like the beginning of a lifetime after-school special. I mean, it's... it's... It, it, it is. But Michael was not in good shape, and Jackie could tell something happened. He was beat up, which was a typical night. Always chaos. There had often been trouble at the Nugabauer home. Still, she got in the car and headed out with Michael. That night, they drove all the way to Wisconsin... Well, that day into the night, they drove all the way to all the way to Wisconsin, and, and it wasn't until they were alone in a motel room that Michael told her what he had done. He was frantic in the hotel, panicked, and he told Jackie that he had killed his family. He then threw her on the bed, got on top of her, and she asked, "Am I next?" He said, you read my mind. And Jackie went into survival mode. How terrifying that must be for 
uh, for her. I mean, and him. I mean, but you know, you've been I'm, you've been fantasizing running away with this dude, and and then he shows is, up with money, and you do it, and then you get to your spot, and he's like, "Hey, I killed my family, and um, I'm we might we might do something here, but yeah, I think you're right. next. Yeah, I, now it's I, your turn. Goodness, I I mean, holy smokes, that has got to be terrifying for her. The night prior, on January 26, 1992, it should have seemed odd to Hilda Neugebauer when her grandson Michael knocked on the door and asked to borrow a gun and some ammunition. It wasn't so much that Michael would come to visit, that was pretty typical. Hilda's home was situated on the same lot, just about 50 yards away from her son Ronald and his wife Maureen's trailer. A visit from any of her grandchildren that lived there just took a minute or two. It probably wasn't even strange that Michael wanted to borrow a, a rifle and some ammunition or that, Hilda, or that he told Hilda he wanted to shoot some birds. Michael was an avid hunter, practically since he could walk and talk, and the teenager spent more time outside hunting than he did anything else. What made the visit peculiar was that this was North Dakota in the dead of winter. Winter means sundown by or before 5 p.m. It means absolute darkness and biting winds that will freeze the tears to your face. You know, and I, and I, yeah, the whole hunting thing, it shouldn't, it shouldn't seem odd that he wants a gun. It's, it's a boy on the prairie and on, on a, on a farmer. That's what makes it very, very different. You know, you drive to work in, in the dark in the wintertime and you drive home in the dark in the wintertime. So it's, that's, that's the alarming part. At the time of his visit, and especially given the remote location of their homes in Minokin, away from any light pollution from the city, it would have been pitch black. Why, why is he going to be out hunting birds in the dark of night? You can't even right. see him. Yeah. I, I mean... And I'm no hunter, but uh, a rifle is not a bird hunting gun. I, I think nope, a shotgun that's a, is. That's a shotgun. Okay. Yep, I'm not a yep, hunter, so yep, maybe I miss some typically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, eating a pheasant and, or eating some pheasant and, you know, you, you, you know, bite into a BB. Yeah. That's... Or one of the... Yeah. That's... A short time a short time after 9 p.m. later that evening, Hilda heard multiple gunshots outside, followed by blood-curdling screams. The startled grandmother called over to the trailer to make sure everything was all right. Michael answered the phone and reported to his grandmother that he had shot a dog, that everyone was fine. Hang, hang on. Uh, this kid's story was awful. I, I mean, what dog? You shot a dog? Like what just happened? Had, had to shoot a dog, Grandma. What happened to the birds you were shooting? Like, I'm. This is terrifying already, just because, uh, dude. Is it one. more or less terrifying that Hilda just took him at his word and said, "Okay, good," because some, something did something didn't sit right with with Hilda. Of course, she she would later tell police that Michael sounded nervous, and as soon as she hung up the phone, she walked to her bathroom, pe- peeked out the window to see if anything appeared amiss over at her son's home. The darkness, of course, making it difficult to see, and she was able to make out a figure emerging from the trailer, getting into Marine's 1981 White Grand Prix and driving away. At the time, she couldn't tell which of the five members of the Neugebauer family it was. Oddly, Hilda didn't make any additional phone calls to the trailer that night, nor did she walk over to confirm for herself that everyone was okay. The next morning, she did call Maureen's brother, Merle Sherman, and asked him to come over and check on her son's family next door. At 9.40 a.m. on January 27th, Merle drove up, the shabby re- drove up to the shabby red and white trailer, walked to the front door, and found it was locked. 
Michael Neugerbauer had assured his worried grandmother just 12 hours earlier that everything and everyone was okay. But as Merle walked around to the north side of the trailer, he noticed crimson-colored droplets on the bright snow. Numerous bullet holes were scattered across the outside of the trailer. Spatters of blood and brain matter had frozen to the sides of the home. Just a few feet ahead lay the face-down, frozen body of his sister, 40-year-old Marine Neugebauer. Merle turned around and ran to Hilda's house and immediately called the Burley County Sheriff's Department. You know, and, and being it's 1992, how, and on a farm, that door wouldn't have been locked no. if things were fine. No. I mean, so that's, something's got to tip him off right there. No. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Marine was face down with both of her arms extended over her head. A pool of dark red blood had formed underneath her body, soaked into the snow underneath her. Even though this was Marine's final resting spot, she had not started there. She had been drugged by her feet from another side of the trailer, her body leaving unmistakable arm, leg, and torso imprint paths through the deep inches of snow. Marine had been shot once in the back of the head, effectively blowing off the top part of her skull. Because she had been face down with part of her head missing, in a pool of her own blood that had frozen in the bitter, cold winter air, when authorities were able to turn her body over, her face was unrecognizable. She was later identified by the medical examiner through her dental records. Maureen had been shot once in the back and had multiple abrasions on her arms and hands from being drugged through the snow. The discovery of Maureen's body was horrific enough, but when, in, when investigating officer Sheriff Les Wachowski and Dr. John Driscoll finally made entry into the trailer home, they walked into what could only be described as a massacre. Blood, brain matter, organ tissue, bone fragments, teeth fragments, and bullet holes covered the walls in virtually every space of the four-bedroom trailer home. 32 caliber shell casings littered the floors. When the body of 13-year-old Ryan Neugebauer was discovered, he was lying on the floor of the only bathroom in the four-bedroom trailer. A pool of blood had formed underneath his head, but a quick look into the boy's room next door made it evident that the bathroom was not where Ryan had been killed. Like his mother, Maureen, Ryan had been dragged to this resting spot. Blood pools had soaked into the carpet in the hallway between his room and the bathroom, and the flooring in the bathroom was streaked with bloody drag marks. Ryan had been getting ready for bed dressed in a blue bathrobe over a Michael Jordan t-shirt and pants when his killer entered the bedroom. Ryan had moved to the back wall of his room and cowered down in a corner to shield himself. His efforts were in vain. However, as he was shot point blank in the right side of the head, the corner where he had cowered was a sticky mess of blood, bone fragments, and bodily fluids. The bullet exited from the back of his head, removing a significant part of his skull. The high-velocity impact of the wound also caused blood, bone fragments, and tissue to be expelled across the room, splattering on the ceiling, staining his bed linens, and sticking to the dresser. Even though young Ryan was found with the pocket knife stu stuffed into, the, into one of the pockets of his robe, a knife would have been no match for the gun held directly to his head. Next door to Ryan's bedroom was the master bedroom where both 16-year-old Michelle Neugebauer and her father, 44-year-old Ronald, were found. Ronald and Michelle were trying to flee their attacker, attempting to run into the bedroom for safety, but neither had gotten very far. 
Both father and daughter were shot in the back, Michelle twice, Ronald once. Both had collapsed just inside the doorway of the bedroom. Ronald was wearing only a pair of white underwear briefs. He was slumped over, face down in a pool of his own blood. His left leg was bent and positioned almost underneath him. He had also been shot once through the jaw, an impact that caused several of his teeth to be blown out, lying in fragments next to his head, suspended in dried blood. Michelle, wearing a pair of blue panties, a white shirt, and white socks, was lying face down, sprawled out on the bedroom floor. Her feet propped up on her father's shoulders. In addition to her back wounds, her jaw had been grazed three times by bullets, causing her face and neck to bleed profusely, soaking the floor beneath her and staining the front of her white shirt a dark crimson. Less than 24 hours earlier, Ronald Neugebauer's family consisted of five people, himself, his wife, his daughter, and two sons. Four of them were now dead, and the hunt would begin for the fifth. So, quick question. So, in what order in what order do you think they were shot? It's it's difficult to tell based on all of the evidence. However, we will later we will later find out um what order it came in. But I mean, I'm 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 speculating based on the evidence and, and the way it all comes together. It's dad, it's the sister, it's the mom and and probably young Ryan last. Sure, yeah. Um, especially with him hiding. I mean, if he's, well, his mom was found outside. So it's, if, if you, you shoot dad and the sister who are kind of in the back rooms, Mm -hmm. um, the mom, the mom discovers what's happening, right? Gets shot on the way out, trying to flee because she was shot in the back. Um, so that's, it's the way it seems to indicate. Sure. Uh, authorities dutifully processed the crime scene and swiftly began the investigation. A multi-agency task force was formed, including the FBI, state and, state and local police. They issued a nationwide manhunt for the couple, along with a description of the white 1981 Pontiac Grand Prix. Burley County Sheriff Bob Harvey admitted, We don't know for sure where they're at, whether they're in state or out of state. We haven't the foggiest idea. But it sticks with you. You've got four dead bodies. It's not something you deal with. It doesn't go away. In the immediate days, because they were both minors, they could not, within the first 24 hours, until they got special approval through the court system, they could not reveal Jackie's name. They also couldn't show Mm -hmm. pictures immediately. So it was just... To be on the lookout for a couple that matches this description, you could give descriptions and then the vehicle. But so you it, couldn't, and you could probably give ages, but you couldn't give names. You couldn't show their faces. After you know. a few days, once they sure. got a few a few approvals, they were able to. But in the first day, no, you couldn't. Right. You couldn't and do it right is, away. I mean, and this is like you know, well before social media, of course. I yeah, mean, way, obviously. way before, of course. I mean, so that that's it's all by. <laughs> Media, uh, and basically. At this point, you you already know you know the girlfriend's gone. So there's there's concern for Jackie. Did Michael Neugebauer intend to make her victim number five? Are are the, is his body going to turn up somewhere down the road? State's attorney Patricia Burke told news reporters, "Let's put it this way: If you've possibly just killed four people, what's one more? Jackie, who they believed was with Michael, whether willingly or not, they didn't know. Well, and, and Jackie was probably wondering the same question. I mean, <laughs> no doubt." Know? 
No time was spared in tracking down clues and processing the crime scene. Autopsies of the Neugebauer family were conducted by Dr. Jim Wahi. During the autopsy of 16-year-old Michelle Neugebauer, it was revealed a fetus was present. By the morning of January 30th, Witkowski had set up surveillance on a shabby trailer house in the Bismarck area. Residents there were suspected of assisting Michael Neugebauer. Three individuals left in an orange Volkswagen and, and, and were followed on several stops. Surveillance was ultimately turned over to the detectives from the Mandan Police Department, but the stakeout would lead nowhere. Um, also, uh, Witkowski would order a sexual kit be administered to Michelle based on the findings uh, in, in, in her panties and of the fetus um, during that aspect of the investigation and of the autopsies. I mean, so it definitely adds a, certainly another layer. It, it could, it it could, you, you, yeah, it it definitely could. Uh, Evidence found at the crime scene revealed love letters between Michael and Jackie. The two had often mentioned Texas as a potential runaway destination. Deputy Trent Wangen conducted numerous follow-up interviews. Friends of Jackie, he believed she would head for Texas, where her biological father lived. He also interviewed several of Neugebauer's friends, where he learned Michael had often mentioned Texas and Florida. However, his, his friends, too, suggested Texas to be the more likely destination. A Minnesota man reported seeing the White Grand Prix near Fergus Falls. Law enforcement agencies from Billings and Great Falls, Montana, were investigating witness claims. And there were a myriad of potential sightings, reports, and rumors. A call from Ray Jesser, the assistant principal of Bismarck High School, said that Michael would show up at the funeral of his slain family. Which, uh, that was Friday following... um, So that was... This occurs on the night of the 26th. It's a Sunday night, technically into a Monday morning. And so for... Well, you know, you have rumors to, are coming from everywhere. Well, and there, and you have to follow up on those rumors. You have to follow up on those. You can't, and that's one of them. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't ignore those by any means. I'm not going to name them all, but there was like nine people in the task force, sure. uh, and, and it's, it's, yeah, it's multiple agencies, and you've got, especially if this you've got, well, you've got these, gonna... these guys are on stakeout, surveilling a house that they they believe. Um, then you're fielding all these calls. You're, you, there's follow up calls on Sunday, February second. The Mandan Police Department called with information regarding the case. An informant whose babysitter used to date Michael Neugebauer. <clears throat> an informant whose babysitter used to date Michael um, said that Mike used to take her to an abandoned farm in southeast Burley County. It had a bed and dishes, but no heat or electricity. She knew the location and was willing to take police there. Arrangements were made to investigate the farm. Nothing would turn up. Well, of course not. I mean, this these again, they have to follow up on everything, but and and they're gonna they're obviously gonna search the ends of the earth for this kid, you know, with the with the massacre that's just occurred in his home. Um, but I mean, 
these kids, he's going to run away as, as far as he possibly can. I, I mean, it's just sheer panic. Maybe I've just watched too many movies. I don't know. But Later that same day, Bob Neugebauer contacted Lieutenant Wachowski to advise he had received a call from one Hazel Froming. Now, Hazel was known to Wachowski, and she has a history of mental commitments. Froming would tell Bob that she and Ronald had been having an affair and that Ronald, quote, went berserk after they had sex. Froming suspects Ronald abused the family, which was why Maureen and which which was why Maureen had previously moved out. Okay, I have this is this is everything you've got to deal with during an investigation. Well, it's, right. it's all these calls, all these crazies. Everybody wants everybody wants to 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 say they know something, they know someone, or they've seen something. It's right. a small it's small and, town stuff. Well, yes, she may have had a you know a history of of mental illness. Um, she seems to be. <laughs> She seems to know a little bit unless she's unless she's guessing or you know guessing lucky. She or she yep. She would claim that that she wasn't the only woman Ronald was having an affair with. There was a second woman uh, suggested by her, and she she herself told Bob, "Hey, look, I've been committed before." She was open with her sure. mental commitments. So well, and of course, take that for what it's worth. But yeah. that's that's a witness report that had to be followed up on and processed by Wetkowski and the team. Sure. And on Monday, February third. A meeting was held. The daily meeting was held in the investigations office concerning developments in the case. Phone records for the past six months were subpoenaed. A sighting of the White Grand Grand Prix at the Almont exit on I-94 was called in. Witkowski was immediately en route. North Dakota Highway Patrol ultimately determined the sighting to be unfounded. On Tuesday... February 4th, the Cavalier County Sheriff's Office received a call from a male identifying himself as Michael Neugebauer. The caller said he was out of money and promised to call back later. They informed Wachowski, who advised a tap be placed on the phone line. The caller would never call back. Patricia Burke, Burley County State's Attorney, advised Wachowski she had received information from one of Michael's friends, who had spoke to him the day of the murders, and he said that Michael was planning to go to Mexico. Witkowski met that day with Associate Principal Ray Jesser, as well as several students who had reported rumors or were known to be friends with Michael. One of them, a hunting buddy, said there were many creeks, tree rows, and towers on the Nugabauer land, and that it was possible a car could be hidden among the trees. He said Michael never took drugs and really only drank alcohol if it was around. He described Michael as having a short temper like his dad and Michelle, and that Michael didn't seem to like his mom very much, that she was, quote, a bitch who kept too tight of ties on him. Which, I mean, that's a 15-year-old. It's any 15-year-old that gets I mean, mad at their mom. Exactly. It, know, that's, that's, that's not, there's not, nothing menacing about that, no, typically. But not every 15-year-old shoots his mother either. No. Afterward, Witkowski stopped at the Wachter Middle School to speak with a student, but was informed by Principal Jim Potter that he would need parental consent. The student's mother requested they be interviewed at a later time. Investigators would also learn that Jackie had a brother living in Fargo. The FBI was contacted to follow up. I mean, this kid, this kid has... This case has involved so many agencies, different agencies. I mean, you're talking about police departments, um, sheriff's departments, FBI, BCI. Multiple cities. Everything. I mean, multiple states, everything. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh, it's 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 stretching out, and it's and by now it's it's on the news. By now they can share the pictures. By so it's it's things are moving rapidly. We're, we're, we're already this occurred the night of the twenty sixth. We're 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 into February fifth. Almost ten days later, yeah. Um, on Wednesday, February fifth, uh, witnesses at a convenience store in Beach, North Dakota, reported a possible sighting. A nervous couple matching the general description of Michael and Jackie purchased donuts and then rushed out of the store. Follow-up interviews were conducted with the witnesses. The couple was heading westbound and had blankets and pillows in the back of their car. And after seeing photos of the couple on the local news, the witness called back to say they were sure the couple was Michael and Jackie. During the investigation, Witkowski had learned that Jackie Heeb previously attempted to run away and was known to the organization... Oh, I've got it here. It's the Youth the Youth Works organization. Uh, youth Works is a uh, local organization with the mission of helping homeless, runaway, trafficked, and struggling youth throughout North Dakota. Information obtained through this counselor interview revealed that on January 21st, Jackie had told this counselor from Youth Works that Michael was being abused by his father and that she saw bruises on Mike and she wanted him to report the abuse. On January 22nd, Jackie again called the Youth Works counselor to say that Mike was upset that she reported the abuse that his father had found out and uh, that Michael was not going to be going to Youth Works to submit a statement. When his dad found out, he got so mad that he put Mike's car up on blocks, took away his keys, and restricted him to the Minokan farm, telling him he is not allowed to see Jackie ever again. Later that day, an English teacher at Michael and Jackie's high school would report a rumor heard in class that someone was providing the runaway couple with groceries and supplies, and they were hiding in the Hazen area. You know, and this is, uh, these places are all over North Dakota. Like, I mean, within the, within the Bismarck area, I would say like the lower half it's, it, of it, North Dakota. It, you would go almost in like a two hour radius-ish yeah. of Bismarck, even less an hour-ish. Um, right. I mean, you know, Beach, North Dakota is two hours, you know, from, from Bismarck. I mean, so it's, it's a relatively close proximity to, to Minokin. Oh yeah. It's, 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 it's not far. No. Uh, on Thursday... February 6th, the daily investigation meeting, a new Rockford man had been arrested on a warrant. His girlfriend was close friends with Jackie, and this man dished all the information he had, which really isn't much. Just a few weeks prior, him and his girlfriend had declined to help Jackie and Michael run away, but he suspected if Nugabauer was in Bismarck that he was hiding out with a girl living on Rosser Avenue. Which is like downtown. Downtown downtown Bismarck Bismarck, area. Yeah. Yeah, Other people on the run were known to have hid there previously. Um, His girlfriend would later corroborate the info and suggest Jackie had always told her they would go to South Dakota or California when they ran away. You know, two very similar states, of course. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Which one are the other? I don't know. South Dakota, California can't decide. They're so similar. Then... A possible break in the case. Perry Smith of the Minneapolis FBI called. Maureen Neugebauer's checkbook and clothing articles were found in a ditch by a farmer in Newtown County, 
Indiana. FBI agents were immediately dispatched to the area. That same day, a witness came a witness came into the sheriff's office to report seeing the couple at Kirkwood Mall, and that rumors were going around drug dealers had killed the Nugabowers. He also said Michael did not get along well with his father, but did get along well with the rest of his family. He also offered his theories on what happened. Nugabauer had killed Jackie, then committed suicide, or is being hit by friends, or Jackie and Michael are hiding on abandoned farms. So, okay, there there have been countless theories, which obviously always happen with um, with anything. anything Everybody's that goes on. got a theory. Everybody has a theory. Everybody, they're like belly buttons. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody has <laughs> one. Um, but uh, you can see, like, you can see the start of how social media would become such a nightmare. You know, this guy's this guy's got three different theories. Wow. I just, just walks in and volunteers yeah. this information. Like, hey, oh, hey, by things. the way, I'm pretty sure I saw them hanging out at the mall. In Bismarck. And yeah. um, this, this, and this. Right. And it's like a comment section come alive. Anyway, yeah. It's comment section come to life. <laughs> yeah. Several North Dakota Bureau of Criminal Investigation special agents came to the office. They canvassed the ditches south of the Nugabauer farm on I-94, on, on I-94 but no evidence. A call from Beach, North Dakota, reported a sighting of the White Grand Prix at an abandoned farm near New Salem. Morton County units were dispatched. Still nothing. Um, previously, the, the previously requested, they had previously requested the phone records of the Nugabauer household dating back six months. Phone records came back, turning up nothing substantial. Witkowski sent a teletype to agencies in the southeastern region of the U.S. advising of the Indiana findings. Now, a teletype, what is that, you might ask? It's, it's essentially, it combines a typewriter with a fax machine, and it's how they would communicate. So before email, mm-hmm. before actual computers and actual internet, this teletype machine, you would type in your memo, and it would essentially send this data, and, and, and I... I, I sh- I shudder to use fax because it's not quite a fax. It's not a fax. It's more of a but printer. More of a smart printer. A, a, yeah, somewhat smart printer. Yeah, I but that's, that's that's what they were. That's what we're dealing with in in the nineties. Well, and they still use teletypes, um, you know, to send out a mass communication. So, um, you know, they. I mean, they're still used in in dispatch centers everywhere. Um, the crime. The the s- sexual assault kit would also come back from Michelle Nugabauer. Of course, uh, it, it had been revealed during the autopsy that she was there was indeed a fetus pregnant. She might not even have known right. she was pregnant um, at, at that point. And in her panties, panties was found, Don? Uh, well, semen, as well as a high acidic PSA, so which is typically... Uh, common it's not always but common in uh someone with uh some sort of uh, major infection or cancer so you know prostate cancer because that's potentially where the, pros- prostate cancer mm-hmm. or perhaps maybe some other form of, of sexually transmitted disease right. there was ultimately never any follow-up done in relation to that but w- reflecting on this murder and everything that happened the mother and father the, the mother and sister or the father and sister are found in a bedroom uh, the the weird things coming coming back that she was potentially that she was pregnant 
strange findings in the results of the sexual kit there. It just raises some questions. It raises questions uh, for sure. And, you know, of course, you know, we're certainly not speaking ill of of the deceased here by any means, but, uh, you know, looking at, um, like Jonah said, everything that's come back, it, it raises an eyebrow and the fact that it was never followed up on, that's the part that, that makes me wonder again, this was 92 things were done differently, you know, and, and what goes on in someone else's household is nobody's business. And, and I mean, so it's, I, I think, uh, I think some more questions should have been, should have been asked in, in my opinion. But again, this is 2020 and it we're is. asking about a case in 1992. And all this information in the state of North Dakota is, is public record. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. On Friday, February 7th, Witkowski contacted James Wright at the FBI Behavioral Science Unit and relayed the facts of the case. Wright asserted that Michael had likely planned the murders up to a certain point, but then became disorganized and things became unplanned. Wright advised Jackie should be treated as a victim in this situation. Absolutely. Of course she's of course she should be. <laughs> there she should be, but you also don't know. I guess you do know that according to her parents knew that she was home that night and went to school that morning, so she couldn't have been involved with the murders. Right. right. So yeah, you you do she's not an accomplice. No, certainly not an accomplice, but but definitely I mean, you know, your boyfriend who has been known to have a bad temper, uh, you know, like his father and like his sister. Um, he's been abused, all these things. And then, you know, she's, you know, obviously nobody knows that she's been threatened, but I mean, yeah, you can't, you can't assume that she's safe and that she's got a part of it. Police in Sarasota, Sarasota, Florida received a tip about a 1981 Pontiac Grand Prix with North Dakota license plate at the Rhodes Motel. A Sarasota police officer telephoned the motel's manager at about 2 a.m. on Saturday, February 7th, technically going into the 8th year, but, and learned that two young people had checked in on Friday afternoon, saying they were brother and sister. The pair registered under the name Deb Priest, and the girl said they'd, ridden, they'd, they'd driven down from North Dakota. Motel manager Manny Rodasakis recalled that the two teens had been very polite when they checked in, they paid for a $30 room with a $50 bill and went swimming in the motel pool. A $30 hotel room? Yeah. Dang. The times. Can't even rent a closet for that. The Sarasota police SWAT team raided the room at 3 in the morning. The two teens tried to escape out a back window, but officers wrestled Michael to the floor while Jackie cried out, What's going on? What do you want? Why are you hurting him? The two were quickly captured and Jackie he was moved to a shelter for runaways while Michael Nugabauer awaited extradition from Florida to North Dakota. Um, Nugabauer, of course, Nugabauer had eluded authorities for 12 days. The two teenagers, after being captured at a motel in Sarasota, Florida, uh, that day on Saturday, February 8th, Special Agent Jeff Hosking of the Bismarck FBI office notified Witkowski that Jackie Heeb and Michael Nugabauer had been apprehended in Sarasota, Florida. Witkowski and several agents departed to Florida that same day. Uh, They would strategize over how to conduct these interviews. Um, I I did get essentially the entirety of 
his interactions with Jackie, and I'm, I'm not going to read the entirety of their of their numerous interviews, but Jackie was very defensive for Michael. Um, Jackie uh, alleges that there was abuse at the home. She's she's corroborating the story. She's saying that that Michael never. She says to Witkowski, Michael never explicitly told her that he killed his family. In fact, she would initially make the suggestion that uh, Michael paid somebody to kill his family, that he didn't do it. Of course, that, that, would, that would quickly crumble under uh, just even the slightest amount of scrutiny. Well, yeah, I mean, they were going to run away together and live on love, you know, with 1500 bucks in his pocket. I mean, so... Uh, and they, they interview her um, right there at the YMCA Watson House in Sarasota, Florida, where she was being held. Um, you know, her. they, they go through and, and Jackie says Mike was physically abused by his father, that she had seen the marks. Um, Mike had money in a car. Mike said he, according to her again, that he hired somebody to kill the family. She found out from her cousin that the Nugabauer family was shot said Mike could not kill anybody and then then said maybe he could kill his dad and Jackie admitted she may be able to kill the dad herself. Jackie indicated she observed no weapons while traveling with Mike. Uh, still an essential part of the investigation at this point that has not been recovered is the murder weapon. Um, of course, police police have canvassed all, all over the state um, and, and he pressed her to, to, to learn if there was any murder weapons brought along. And, you know, she, she didn't think so. She said it wasn't unusual when Mike showed up in her mother's car to, to pick him up. Um, and that they, hey, that they had driven mostly on I-94 and I-92, which is surprising, um, given that the, 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 the APB was sent out for that white Grand Prix. Right. And they did most, if they did most of their driving on the interstates through Nashville, through Tennessee. Um, yeah, they weren't taking back roads, not by any means. Not according, not according to uh, what, what Jackie reveals in the interview with Witkowski. Um, so the, 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 the two uh, kind of essentially go back and forth, and he asks why, well... It, Okay, Mike and his dad were always fighting. His dad treated him poorly, but why? Why did he kill his his twelve year old brother? Jackie just said she she don't know. She under, she didn't understand why if he did it uh, or if it was actually him. Wachowski asked her if Mike admitted he did it, um, or asked if Mike had ever said he made a mistake or lost it. Jackie replied that Mike told her he was insane, and um, you know, I don't know how I did it. So they're trying to get her, of course, to turn witness against him in any way, shape, or form. And um, she's a 16-year-old girl trying her best not to indict, yeah. verbally indict her, her boyfriend, really trying to dance her ways. I imagine, and I don't know that I got a whole bunch of pity for Jackie. I've got some. It's a tough situation to be in, but you're you're in Florida you're stripped away from your boyfriend. Now you've got several agents interviewing you in this conference room. What a what a what a crazy situation to be in. Well, and she's a she's a child. You know, she's 16 years old. And you know, if you can remember back when you were 16, the biggest tragedy any of us could go through was breaking up or or um, losing our boyfriend or girlfriend. 
right? And so if she if she turns on him, if she turns him in and, and admits what he or says what he had admitted to her, that would be the worst thing ever. Because in, in her eyes, I'm sure she still thinks that they're going to be together forever. Yeah. Uh, according to Jackie, during the interview, Mike, she says, Mike, Mike said he lost his family and did not realize how much he had. Witkowski asked Jackie if Mike ever said he killed them. Jackie replied, no. She said she said he told her he hired someone to kill them that morning. Um, Mike used the term lost, quote, not killed. Jackie again said she does not believe Mike could do that and that uh, thought he would have to be insane to kill his family. She again denied ever hearing anything on the news. So she claims to have been pretty ignorant the whole time of, of what he had actually done um, throughout their their journey, their their twelve day escapade down to Florida, um, she wasn't sure what started the fight between Michael and his father. Um, the two would eventually be um, extradited back to North Dakota. Uh, Jackie um, would spend a lot of time in group homes. Uh, Nugabauer's case was challenging. This is a 15-year-old kid, and yes, this kid has murdered four people, uh, allegedly. Horrendous crimes, um, yeah. It's a horrendous crime, but there was a lot of con- there was some initial controversy over whether or not do you, do you try him as a minor or as an adult. Uh, I know when they're 16, 17, when they're a little older, mm-hmm. it's a little easier to do that. Um, Michael being 15, uh, it it, it 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 wasn't an automatic that he would be tried as an adult. Right. They went through they went through the process, and eventually, uh, yes, he he was in fact tried as an adult. Uh, there is some some really interesting uh, some interesting aspects that that come out of this case uh, in terms of the court proceedings it would go on for over a over a year there most of michael's family disowns him his aunt and uncle they would stay they would stay sort of try to stay true to him and help him through the judiciary process they strongly felt like the case was um, mishandled by michael's lawyer and that the district attorney burke was aggressive and overlooked the circumstances leading up to the events of the murder michael would 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 long contest that the the system had failed him and it had failed his him and his siblings and um of course the D, the da didn't wasn't really buying into it. Nugabauer claims it was physical abuse by his father and sexual abuse by his sister that drove him to commit the murders. Burley County Prosecutor Patricia Burke didn't believe the claims of abuse. She said that Michael told several different versions of the abuse story after his arrest that the allegations of abuse could not be substantiated. She also suggested that the abuse of his father and sister didn't explain why he killed his brother and mother. Michael Nugabauer Quote, Michael Nugabauer can deal with what he did in the way he sees fit. If he wants to say he doesn't remember, that's fine with me. All I know is all I know is he killed four people. And let's assume he was abused, which I don't believe he was, but let's assume it anyway. Why did he kill his little brother? He murdered four people, and then he went and played on the beach in Florida. I think he deserves to be where he's at. 
This is I, the DA, Patricia Burke. The yeah, the Burley County State's Attorney. Yeah, the state, and, not yeah, State's Attorney, not DA. My bad. Right. I have I have smoke coming out of my ears because this has bothered me every time I've read it. Every time we've talked about it. While yes, she has a job to do. That is that's what she's there for. Um, it's that lack of. Um, I'm not sure if I want to use the word empathy, but you you have to look at it somewhat. Does he deserve empathy? No, he's killed four people. I, in in no way am I saying you know am I condoning this you know whatsoever. I mean if if he was if he was abused, um, that should be investigated. Yes, it's it's just it's just Michael is the only one that can talk about it. What about uh, what about Jackie? What about the counselor that she was with at YouthWorks? Um, and for her to say, you know, let's just say that he was, which I don't believe he was. Well, that's fine. But if you don't investigate it, if you don't even, if you don't even entertain the idea and if she did, it would certainly give, you know, an easier defense for, for Michael and his attorney, but people don't face their trauma until they're ready to face their trauma. And so for her to say, um, that it didn't happen or whatever, it, it, what their trauma is um, or what a person's trauma is makes it very difficult. We can't question what that is and we can't question how they then react. I mean, you know, if you look at the prolonged uh, effects of abuse, I mean, things kind of line up. And of course this is, I'm no professional, um, but how do you, how do you just completely dismiss that? How do you completely dismiss that? And I know that we were talking about 1992 when again, if what is going on in your home is not my business as your neighbor. And, you know, we're talking about the, the school board president, um, you know, and you know, sarcastically speaking, surely he must not beat his family um, just because of his status. And it was, it, we, you know, we turned the other way. I mean, this, this case changed the rules for mandatory reporting, um, which good, it should have, you know, but any teacher, um, anybody in, in those uh, or any, you know, employees in the school system, anything like that, they're mandatory reporters now. They have to say something if they see abuse. Where back then they didn't they didn't have to. Right. And I, I and and I I feel you on all that. I, I do also see that she's she's a prosecutor doing doing her job and she's got four bodies to bury four bodies that have been buried in her district. And you you want to see a prosecution? You want to see a guilty verdict? And uh, it, it, it 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 is perhaps a a carelessly designed system in that regard. But I do I do see what she's doing. It, it that's that's her job as a, as as a prosecutor right there. Um, right. And to I, just take yeah. take the evidence that's been given her by the investigative team and use it to the best of her ability to to prosecute this individual. Sure. And I, I do, I do see that she's got a job to do. I, I 100% get that. And, and again, in no way am I condoning his actions, not, not even a oh, little, no, yeah. and, you know, and, and that's not the, that's not the thing, but you know, uh, you know, part of me questions this, especially looking at the physical evidence, you know, with, um, with, um, you know, that was found in the autopsy, you know, there was enough time there. Um, I will say, th- so through, Throughout all of the interviews with Michael, according to everything I could piece together based on the court documents and the investigative file, that he only ever admitted to killing his father and that he he went blank after that. Um, so I want to read, 
and 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 following the following the acquisition of Michael and and again a, a lot of paperwork to get him charged as an adult um, a lot of of further analysis of, of combining all the evidence of course to build the case they had to find the murder weapon the murder weapon was eventually found um along along the ditch uh, on some farmland they would find out from michael you know what did you do after you killed your family and he said he drove around in the country he he ditched the gun somewhere he did not know where um it was eventually found they kind of put out the word a farmer found a gun and said hey i found this gun there was a bullet in it i discharged the bullet sorry uh, it was a thing oh let me find a gun i'm gonna pull the trigger that actually happened found a gun pulled the trigger um, a, well, again, the, the it's bullet, 1992 in a rural area. The, the bullet I mean, gets lodged into the pavement. Uh, they would acquire the weapon. The weapon would then be identified uh, by members of the Nugabauer family as being um, one of the family weapons. And so they did They did have the murder weapon to present uh, in their case that was used. Always important in, in these situations. Um, Again, lots of lots of of back and forth, and and a feeling that Michael was initially held at the state industrial school. That's the essentially that's prison for minors in the state of North Dakota. It's called the state industrial school. It's in Mandan. Um, they they felt since he was being tried as an adult that he should be transferred elsewhere into an adult facility. And then there was feelings from his his family that were still with him, as well as his lawyer. You can't put a fifteen year old in with a prison population. Um, so a, a, a lot of controversy. Ultimately, the state industrial school is like, you guys got to take this kid. And so he was kind of held um, mostly to himself during the time at which he was awaiting trial. Um, more interviews were conducted. Eventually, it comes to the day in court, October 6th of 1993. Three. I'm going to read slash paraphrase the official court documents um, leading into this. This is between Miss Burke, uh, the state's attorney, the court, as well as Mr. Feldner, who was for most of the time Nugabauer's um, lawyer. Uh, so, Miss Burke. Uh, we've come close to a, pre, a plea agreement in this case. Uh, the lead counsel for the state had offer, ha, had preferred an offer a long time ago to the defense. Today, Mr. Feldner came into our office at shortly after noon. Um, I was there, and Mr. Feldner advised me the client had indicated he had a change of heart and a change of some statements and had indicated he may be willing and was, in fact, willing to plead guilty under the following agreement. The first off, he would plead guilty as to one count of the information I believe is the count that charges the death of Ronald Neugebauer. That, as to, as to that, there would be a binding plea agreement as to disposition and that that disposition would be a life sentence without the possibility of parole for 30 years less good time. This is statute, statutory. The court, and I assume he's been advised or that before somewhere along the line, Miss Burke, my conversation with Mr. Feldner, who indicated yes, he was, and he was in fact advised at the time of arraignment by Judge Schneider, I was there. Beyond that, the court would hold in, in, in abeyance the taking or change of the plea on the other three counts dealing with Maureen, Michelle, and Ryan pending an evaluation 
which evaluation would deal with a number of categories, one being the defendant's statement that although he concedes and recalls the death and murder of his father, Ronald, he does not recall the death of the other three individuals in terms of doing them, and whether or not that would constitute any mitigation or possible criminal responsibility defense for him in the future on those three charges. Um, So in total, he would only serve one sentence, although it would be on four charges, and the defense could argue for less based on any mitigating information, psychiatric or otherwise, that was gleaned from that evaluation as to those three charges. It's kind of confusing. It's kind of crazy. So the court says, let me see if I understand what you have just said exactly. If I accept this agreement, he would plead guilty to one count now. Is it contemplated that there would be no change of plea with respect to the other three, but instead he would be evaluated, or was there to be a plea offered, or what? Ms. Burke, it was not contemplated there would be a change of plea as to the other three. That would require a continuation of the trial as to those three counts. Mrs. Burke, although we have discussed that, and it is my understanding, and Mr. Feldner can correct me if I'm wrong, there would be no trial as to the facts of the deaths or that they occurred or the manner in which they occurred. Um, so he would not have an actual murder, tr- murder trial, cause of death, witnesses as to who heard shots, who didn't hear shots, that type of thing. So I take it that there is also the possibility if the evaluation did raise questions regarding these murders, could it be possible that the state would be ch- changing its position at all? Um, they, they go back and forth. On, on what this is. So the court eventually comes to, so it would more likely result in what has come to be called an Alford plea as to those accounts. That is correct. Don, you know what an Alford plea is? You kind of had the definition. So basically what an Alford plea is, is it's, um, I'm not pleading guilty to those. You have enough evidence to convict me, but I'm just going to admit that part and uh, even though I still, you know, maintain my innocence, that is, uh, that is, you know, I'm going to take my sentence for for that. I mean, so, mm-hmm. you know, it's, and I'll read the actual definition instead of my jumbled words. Uh, it's, it is a guilty plea in criminal court whereby a defendant in a criminal case does not admit to the criminal acts and still asserts his innocence. So it's a, it's a guilty, not guilty charge. Basically, you know, the, the, there is enough evidence to convict him, but he still maintains his innocence. And I, and I think what, what they were going for, and, and this is again reading from the actual court documents coming here from Miss Burke, um, I think they gain some sort of administrative route under that. For the defense, this particular plea agreement does remove the possibility, which does exist under the law, for consecutive life sentences, which even given the defendant's young age would probably preclude his release during his life. So I think, I don't know if I've missed anything. I think Mr. Haskell can certainly fill in what I missed the court. I will ask Mr. Haskell if there's anything else that he thinks should be mentioned in connection with the agreement. Mr. Haskell, no, except for, I guess, even though we feel we do have a good case, where whenever you have a jury, there is always the possibility of not, not guilty verdicts on one or all of the counts. So if the court wants to look at what we are gaining from it, obviously we are gaining convictions without that worry. Plus, while it isn't something that we necessarily make a, deci- a decision on, it is something to be considered, that being the cost of the trial. We are looking at witnesses from Florida, Colorado, Minneapolis, 
Indiana. That would have been quite expensive to get them here for trial. So we do have that as far as what we are getting out of this. All right, Mr. Feldner, Mr. Feldner being um, the lawyer for Michael Neugebauer. I've been working with Michael for almost two years now because I was one of the original counsel. I was actually appointed as his legal counsel at the juvenile court proceeding, and William William Schmidt was appointed his guardian. Um, I realize that it is sort of late for presenting a binding plea agreement, and the court knows very well I don't often do that. I don't ask the court to accept the plea agreement this late, but here are the reasons why. And he lays out, um, you know, the reasons he... Uh, he Michael has always maintained he did not commit any of these four counts, and I don't attribute that to a willful misrepresentation or lying on his part as much as an inability on his part to be able to admit that he committed one or more of these offenses. Throughout my representation, I have always tried to make sure that Michael understood that no matter what the true circumstances were surrounding these allegations, that no matter what the actual facts were, that I would represent him to the best of my ability and it wouldn't affect how I personally would think about him or how I would represent him or how I would feel about him. A lot of his family have disconnected, disconnected themselves from Michael. One of his aunts uh, has tried to help encourage Michael in the fact that her feelings for him would not change. Uh, it is an aunt that her name has been in the press because of her fighting for visitation, etc. But in any event, she has also tried to make sure that Michael was aware that if he did in fact commit one or more of these offenses, she would still love him and would still support him. Although this has been going on for many months, it wasn't until this morning that Michael was actually able to acknowledge to me that he remembered what he remembered or what actually occurred as far as the one count that he does recall. I explained to him that the state's attorney's office had made two alternative offers. Uh, one was this plea, and then, of course, one was going to be um, that if he pled guilty to all four, they would recommend four concurrent life sentences to run concurrently on all four offenses, and he could argue for less of a sentence to the court. Um, he informed me he still wants to go with the Alfred route. He absolutely maintains that he doesn't recall anything after killing uh, in the one count. And because of that, I felt I couldn't ethically have him plead guilty to the other three counts at this time because I believe that there may be. He has been evalu evaluated twice now by the state hospital authorities, but both times he absolutely maintained throughout his contact with them that he did not commit any of these offen offenses. And one of the problems they expressed in their report, and I don't know if you have had the opportunity to review those, the court no, I haven't, was that it made it difficult to do a proper evaluation of Michael because they believe that he probably did commit, at least that he did more than what he was admitting to, and unless he came clean with them, it was very difficult for them to do a proper examination. So I felt ethically I couldn't have Michael plead guilty to three counts that he doesn't recall. He absolutely maintains he doesn't recall those things, but it was for this morning, for the first time, as I said, that he actually acknowledged the count regarding his father. I don't think I attribute this to anything willful on his part. I think he was really unable to admit it until today, and I think it took that long. I'm not saying I don't believe the fact that the trial was so close may have had something to do with that, but I don't think Michael was able to admit it until this morning, and that's why his plea agreement is being presented so late in the picture. Um, the court, Mr. Neugebauer, now addressing Michael, you've been sitting here listening to all this, and of course you have had this matter, and I presume you've given a good deal of thought about your situation and how you can best respond to it. Yes, Michael. I think I'm going to start by asking you. I want you to relate to me what it is that you understand is going to happen to you if you accept, if I allow you to plead guilty here to this first count. What is your understanding of what is going to happen? That I would serve one life sentence concurrently to the other three and then have an evaluation. 
How many years do you understand you are going and that you may be spending? 30. 30 years. Well, are you saying that you understand that you're going to get out in 30 years or do you understand that you could be required to serve your entire life out there? Mr. Neugebauer, yes, depending on what happens, but that you might be eligible for parole if you conduct yourself property in 30 years. Neugebauer, yes, the court. So I want to make sure you understand you have no guarantees you are going to be getting out in 30 years even. Yes, you could wind up spending the rest of your life there if you plead guilty to the first count. Yes, the court. All right, now I'm being told you sounded a little vague with respect to the other charges. What is it that you understand is going to happen with respect to the other counts? They go back and forth a little bit as to the nature of the event and um, they want to explore of course, uh, the the Alfred plea, and, and there's some back and forth between Neugebauer and the court. Um, it's kind of they've they've got it all all in writing, uh, but there's a, a given the nature of the sentence to be imposed here. Um, it seems like it's reasonable, but the court wanted to hear a little bit more from Michael that he they wanted a statement from him during the proceedings. Um, they ask where it happened at my house, at your family's house. Um, it says that you shot Ronald with a gun. What kind of gun are we talking about? Nugabauer, a thirty-two special, a pistol. Nugabauer, no, the rifle, the court. I see. I don't know that much about guns. How did you happen to have that gun? Nugabauer explains. He went over to his grandmother. She got it from his grandma. Um, they ask him why'd you go get the gun? Nugabauer says because I had been fighting, and I was tired of it. And I just, the court, you say fighting. Do you mean arguing? Yes. With your father? Yes. Um, And that was your, you said because you had been fighting um, with your father, what was your purpose in getting that gun? What were you going to do with it? To begin with, I was just tired of all the years of shit, said Michael. You said you went over to your grandmother's. Yes. How far away? 40, 50 yards. Um, Whose gun was it? My dad's or grandpa's or something? I don't know. I'm not really sure who owned it. Um, was this a repeat or a lever action? It was lever action. You know how to operate it. Yes. Have you ever fired it before? Yes. Where did you get ammunition? And where, where was it loaded? He loaded, he loaded the gun in the basement of his grandmother's house. Well, so it sounds, I mean, it sounds like basically they're trying to get details. They're trying to make sure he is of a sound mind. I mean, in, in, you know, in a lot of states, they can't charge a, a, an adult or a juvenile as an adult until they're 16, some states are 13. So, I mean, it sounds like they're just trying to get information and, and, Absolutely and, and just, thorough. Some, yeah, I mean, and, and this kid was looking at, you know, just say 30 years or life for each sentence, you know, you're looking at 120 years for 30 years. Or, I mean, or, that's or the, maybe you, or you maybe do 40, 30 and you get you know, an evaluation and you can see the light of day eventually. Right. Because um, at that point, he'd be 46 if it were 30 years. Even if even if it were, you know, 40 years, he'd be 56. You know, he's still got a lot of life left, uh, you know, ahead of him. I mean, so he's, yeah, he is a, a teenager, but clearly... I mean, he's not, he's not an idiot. No. And, and th- they go back and forth a little bit. They ask him what happened after you got the gun. Michael says he, he came, he came home and sat in the living room. His dad heard him making noise in the living room, sees him with the gun, gets pissed. The dad confronts him. And it was then, it, it was then, um, that, that Michael, Michael had the gun. Michael says this is about 11 or 12, something like that. Uh, the other members were in there, and they ask him, you pulled the trigger intentionally? Yes. You aimed it at him and shot him? 
Yes, I aimed a gun at him and shot him. How many times did you shoot him? Michael, all I remember is one. What happened next? I don't really know. Do you recall him falling or Nugabauer? Yes, that was it. The next thing I remember, I was in my room getting stuff ready and I heard the phone ringing and my grandmother called and she said, she asked what was going on and I said that I shot a dog. Um, and, and, and that's, 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 that's really it. They kind of go back and forth. Um, you know, how much time he left before he left the house. Um, tell when he came back with the gun about 10 minutes. Um, ultimately, you know, as I said, he, he pleaded guilty. He, he does receive, um, it was likely that he was going to receive the four concurrent life sentences. He does only get the one. Uh, he goes on to say that he was physically abused sexually. Um, the ongoing proceedings, um, some, just some, some, some various, follow-up. Um, prosecutors argued that Nugabauer deserved to be in prison for killing four people at a sentencing. Judge Gerald Glazer ultimately said, up until this point, I've never seen one ounce of remorse. Uh, I've never seen one ounce of remorse, and that's the thing that is troubling. Jackie always maintained the system failed Michael. Quote, Mike is responsible for pulling the trigger, but it's a domino effect. If he would have been taken out of that home when he should have been, or his dad got help, I know they would have been alive, and that is what I live with every single day of my life. The Nugabauer case did prompt some changes in North Dakota, uh, and this would actually be a, a nationwide move that was happening during this time. It wasn't just happening in North Dakota, but... Uh, ultimately juveniles can no longer be sentenced to life without parole. And there's now more awareness about mandatory reporting of child abuse. Since his conviction, Michael Nugabauer has served time at prisons in North Dakota, California, Virginia, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, and Texas. He's currently housed at the state pen in Bismarck, North Dakota. 25 years after his arrest and conviction, Michael sent this in an email to Jackie. I hate what I did and how it hurts so many people. I think what my family missed out on in life because I took it away. I am the one responsible and me alone. I picked up the gun to help me get away from the hell I was going through and living in. I did not intend to kill anyone. If I saw how things ended, I never would have done it. Uh, the murders and their aftermath still deeply haunt Jackie. She suffers with PTSD and says there were a couple of times uh, where I contemplated taking my life. I felt like I had this icky secret of the abuse all the time, knowing the truth of what happened and wishing I could have fixed it. I had a lot of blame on myself, a lot of different emotions. I struggle almost every single day when I think about the family and what they went through. Um, since being in prison, Nugabauer has undergone some psychological treatment he also completed his GED. In 2004, he did attempt to escape from prison. It was pretty quickly thwarted because um, he got ratted out by other people. You never tell anyone. No, we, you never tell anyone. We, we learned that we from talked, McNair. We, we learned yeah. that from McNair. Yeah. Um, yeah, you never... Jackie, of course, uh, would never face any charges, but her life did get extremely complicated following sure. this. It has to. Um, yeah, she life was a nightmare. She said she contemplated taking her life, and uh, that she kind of bounced around between group homes and um, foster homes, and was a victim of bullying and 
lot of lot of difficulties following well, that. She had to deal with her own trauma. Yeah. I mean, that's of course that's traumatic. Yeah. So, um, hell of a thing. Hell of a thing. And uh, I, I, it, we've we've looked at this case a lot. You know, being this is our second episode, and it's uh, we've looked at it a lot, and I still have so many questions. But again, you know, when we're when we're talking about these cases, um, of course, it's it's easy to bring in our Monday morning quarterbacking stuff. You know, thirty years later, it is. It was really fascinating for me to read through the investigation files. They they are quite thorough. Uh, the number again, the the number of people who call in to report a rumor. I mean, there a cousin that knows something, and somebody claimed to get a phone call, and it, just the processing of the crime scene. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was a big file. It I spent a, a file. <laughs> spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of time in it. References for this episode of Midwest Murder. The information was predominantly sorted based on investigation files obtained from the Burley County Sheriff's Office, as well as the public court records for the State versus Nugabauer. A portion of the narrative was written. Written by author C.J. Wynn, whose true crime novel, Wilder Intentions, is available now on Amazon. Additional research contributed by Dr. Sean Antangney, whose work can be found on Myth America here on the Good Talk Network. We'd also like to give a big shout out to Nomad Design House for sponsoring this episode of Midwest Murder. Also for the bitchin' rad logo design. Um, so good. So good. So be, be sure to get a hold of Nomad Design House for any of your graphic design related needs. Um, you can find them on Facebook. And that's uh, kind of a link to all of the uh, Facebook, Instagram. Once again, Nomad Design House. This is Midwest Murder. And you can find us wherever podcasts can be downloaded. Um, iTunes, Spotify, all those great places. And we'd really appreciate your review on iTunes. Final note. All four members of the Nugabauer family lie under a single headstone in Bismarck.